This episode of the Coin World Podcast is brought to you by the Coin World Marketplace. The Coin World Marketplace is the safest way to buy and sell your coins and bullion. Order from the dealer of your choice and pay safely and securely using our escrow checkout. Visit coinworld.market to browse our inventory today. Welcome to the Coin World Podcast. Here are your hosts, Chris Bullfinch and Jeff Stark. This is a special episode of the Coin World Podcast. I got to go to the Florida United Numismatist Show in Orlando, Florida. And this was the, my first time at the fun show. And boy, did I have fun, of course. Ha, ha, ha. You know, I love going to coin shows, as you probably do. Uh, this was no different. I got to sit down and have smaller segment interviews with four different individuals at the show. This was kind of a, a twist. You know, normally in the Coin World podcast, we delve into this week in Coin World history and this week in numismatic history and, you know, maybe provide a little bit of education, that sort of thing. What I wanted to do was take that time at the Florida United Numismatist show and get some thoughts from folks that are all in, in various aspects of the hobby, very different areas, and we chatted for 10 to 15 minutes each with these folks, and so that's what this episode is about. The first person I sat down and talked to was Beth Casper, who is the person in charge of the Pop Joy Mints North American business development, if you will. And uh, one of the th- reasons I wanted to sit down with Beth is because the Pop Joy Mint is sort of the, people know it and they've known it for 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, they do uh, quite a bit with some island nations, some smaller nations. Uh, some things have been very innovative. Some things are sort of, uh, you know, the usual stuff that you see a lot of private mints do. But one of the recent programs has just gone like wildfire. And so, uh, Beth talked to me about the Pop Joy Mint in general, but specifically the Labors of Hercules program. That interview is up now, and then we'll follow with another interview. It's a privilege to be joined today by Beth Casper, who uh, works for Pop Joy Mint. What is your role at Pop Joy Mint, your title and all that? Good stuff. My title is Director of U.S. Sales and Operations, which means I basically deal with any customer in the United States, North America, and even a few foreign countries. And how long have you been involved with the Pop Joy Mint? I've been with Pop Joy Mint 23 years. I've actually been in the coin business for about 30. Yes, yeah, so before that you were with Unicover in Cheyenne, Wyoming, I believe. Correct, and, yeah. uh, and asset marketing asset, in, okay. in Minnesota. Yeah. Cool. So you, you certainly know your way around the coin programs, the modern coin market, for yes. sure. Yes. What has been the most distinct change in the market during your 30 years? Well, there's been lots of different changes. Certain trends that, that start up and do well, and then they change to something else. What was in vogue 20 years ago that's no longer, maybe? Wow, that's hard to say. <laughs> Putting you on the hot seat here. Put me on the hot seat here. Yes. Um, in the past, it was like we had collectors that were generally an older audience. And one of the things that we've done, actually, when I came out with Pop Joy, is try to attract the younger audience, to get them into subjects that they, that they enjoy, subjects that they like. Um, I think that the commemorative issues from foreign countries in the United States wasn't as, as big as it is now. Um, the Internet has actually changed quite a bit that made the world a lot smaller. 
so that we've introduced them to a lot of subjects, um, subjects that they may not have been aware of, mm-hmm. countries that they may not have been aware of. And I think those are some of the bigger changes um, that I've seen in the last 20 years. And, and I would say, uh, and certainly Pabjoy's been, whether uh, reflecting or leading this change, the use of popular culture themes, that yes. seems to have been uh, a major force in the, in the last 20 years, certainly the last 10. Yes, definitely. Finding out what different things uh, appeal to different variety of customers, bringing in the non-coin typical buyer to collect. Because the collectors have their own type of mentality. If you're a collector of certain themes, certain subjects, which is a lot of what we see here. I mean, I, I seem to recall that the Pop Joy may, may have been the first to do the Harry Potter coins. Is that right? Yes, we were. Actually, the very first Harry Potter movie, um, if you recall the scene where Harry went to the bank to get his money, Pop Joy actually struck the coins that were in the movie for that scene. Awesome. Now, how can I get one of those? Oh, actually, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I, they are nudge, sold. Nudge, they wink, work, wink. Yeah, they work. They're currently all sold out. Um, I was actually never able to offer them here in the states, but the I actual was, coins in the movie. The actual coins in the movie that that was filmed that particular thing. Yes. Okay. We now, struck those coins. I, I have to admit, I am I am um, a coin nerd. I'm not. I I, I have never read. Harry Potter. I've never watched the movies. Yeah. Now I have to find that scene so I can go see. And then I want. Then I want to find out where these coins are. The, that would be a cool thing to have a provenance the other day. Hey, that this was in that scene That's, in the movie. Exactly. I was having dinner with just a friend the other night, and her daughter is a huge Harry Potter fan. Was down here in Florida. Went to the Harry Potter world. And I happened to mention that, and she just went crazy. And she's not a coin collector. She says, oh, my God, I would get that. I'm not a coin collector, but that is so appealing to me to actually have the coins that were actually in the movie. And there's a lot of that in the market, not just Pop Joy Mint, but from right. other mints. Uh, what would you say to somebody who's uh, a little skeptical or a little negative uh, about some of these issues and their place in the market? I mean, uh, my... My theory is this is a big tent hobby. There's room for everybody. You don't have to, ever, nobody has to collect the same thing as everyone else. Uh, what, what role is there for those kind of items in today's market? Well, we get that a lot. Actually, here at the coin show, we get a lot of customers or people walking by looking, oh, those aren't real coins. I'm like, what do you mean they're not real coins? Well, they're so used to U.S. coins. And, and, and then explaining to them the commemorative issue and how they can, you know, the different themes. And it is a different type of collector. You either, you know, you collect like a U.S. coin. I don't understand that market at all. But, you know, you have different, uh, different collectors. Like, I collect anything with an owl on it. I had a lady come by. Do you have anything with pineapple? I collect everything with pineapples on them. And so you, we appeal to the different type of collector. We also have the collectors who buy limited edition, and they're, you know, that's what they're there for. They buy only silver. They buy limited edition. But we try to appeal to all different types of collectors, both those that, you know, I'm looking for a gift for my grandchild. I'm into coins. He's a little nervous. But by buying the Harry Potter coin that we have, it gets him into coin collecting without the child realizing, oh, I'm starting to collect coins. And so we feel that we're getting the people in the younger audience in on certain things, but then we also have the serious collector. And and one of those uh, items for a more serious collector I want to talk about is the uh, the original Labors of Hercules series that Pop Joy did 20 years ago, a uh, little more than 20 years ago, and then now it's it, ha- it has been revived. <laughs> you you were there for the original, yes? Yes, I was. And and what can you speak of? Uh, it seems to me, as I recall, that that series was just it was just. I don't want to say so-so, but it was, it was 
it, it was one among many, and it didn't really stand out at the time. But fast forward about 15 years, and people started noticing that it existed, and that's when pr prices started to really soar for what are base metal two-pound coins for, is it Gibraltar? Gibraltar, yes. Yeah. So uh, can you walk me through that evolution? So yes, I was around when those first came out. We had the, the collectors who bought it were our bimetal collectors. They looked at it, it was a beautiful design, and it was, like you said, it was so-so. Fast forward... And oh my gosh, it crashed our website. We have collectors who are emailing us, calling us, messaging us, texting us daily, asking, you know, trying to get the, the first two that we've released. Yeah. But it's all of a sudden, and I think it's the limited edition. We only have 1,750 that were minted. Um, it's, it was a little different. It's a bimetal. Customers like bimetals. It's different than a normal issue. Is, is there there's still strong demand for ring bimetallics? Yes, yes. Around that time of the original series, you had the transition to the Euro, and you had the one and two Euro ring by metallics. You, so there, there, there started to be a lot more ring by metallics. I wondered what kind of steam and collector enthusiasm there, there would still be, you know, 20 years on, and there's so many more issues. Well, I think certain things come back. You have certain issues that were popular at one time, they may fade a little bit, and then they come back, like we see with Hercu Labors of Hercules, with a vengeance, actually. The mintage for the modern issue, so they're 2020 dated for the first ones yes. from Gibraltar. They just came out in the last month or two, uh, beginning uh, end of December or yeah, we, end, I think end of 2019, beginning of 2020. Yes. Uh, 1,750 mintage. Do you know why that was chosen to be so low? Does that match the earlier series? What's the thinking behind that? Well, when we go to look at an issue, a lot of times we do evaluate what we think the mintage should be. We would like to have a sellout. Obviously, we don't want a craze where it does you know, shut down our website and cause customers to have a lot of problems. Um, so, therefore, we actually really underestimated the, the total the scope of the entire program. Um, we thought 1750 was a good number, being a lower number, but not too low. And, obviously, we, we were wrong. Yeah, and that was a coin that initially came out as a you know twenty dollar U.S. price tag, right? I mean, it was right yes. around. So, and now it's trading for about five times five times that, right? A hundred dollars. Wow, it's, it, it's unreal, and it's all developed just in the matter of weeks. Yes, yes. It actually, developed the first day when we launched it. Actually, it was launched at four in the morning U.S. time, um, and then by the time our office opened. Um, and it went on, we went on to look, and certain customers had speculated that they'd be getting the coin, and, and I saw that it started going up, and we're like, oh, my goodness. We couldn't even launch it here in the States because our website had crashed enough that we couldn't even bring it out yet. So, so it, it's funny because around the same time uh, that this came out, or a little bit before, a few weeks before, collectors in the U.S. market were seeing rabid demand for a U.S. Mint product that had yes. much higher mintage, <laughs> 30,000 mintage, talk, talking, of course, about the enhanced uh, reverse proof uh, Silver Eagle, uh, but that crashed the Mint website. You guys crashed with a ring by metallic coin <laughs> with a much cheaper price tag. What do you guys do in the IT department now? Is that can is, is there a way to handle the traffic for the the future demand? Has that been? Have you made changes? What we are actually in the process of making the necessary changes. We did not like doing that to our customers. In fact, we've delayed the the release of the third coin. Um, we thought we were going to plan on releasing it this week. However, we were not confident that the changes made were, were um, extensive enough, so we want to make sure that this next time when we do release the third coin, that customers, when they go on, you know, can either buy it or it's sold out and there's no problems. 
And because it's not fun for us receiving all the phone calls about, oh, I'm getting this error message. It's not fun for, you know, somebody else going on trying to buy something, not even Hercules, that they can't even get onto the website. So we are making sure that uh, we are doing a lot of things in the IT area to make sure this doesn't happen again. Okay. And uh, given the success of that program, uh, what sort of other reissues, if, you, if we can call it that, might be considered uh, for uh, the future from the PopJoy Mint? Oh, yes. We do have a few ideas, but of course, I can't share them at this time. Oh, come on now. Just between us. <laughs> Just between us and everybody listening. <laughs> and we're holding right? the microphones forever. Uh, so, uh, but yes, that is current being looked at. Bringing back maybe some older issues that that were popular that maybe now be even more popular with collectors. And uh, what do you think the reputation of the Pop Joy Mint is here in the U.S.? What do, when people hear the Pop Joy Mint, what do they think of? Well, the customers that come up to my table and say, "Oh, Pop Joy, you're here. I've always loved your coins. You have unique. You have uniqueness. You have different. You have things that I understand. You." You know, your quality is top quality, and we really appreciate the service. Whenever we order a coin from you, we get it right away. Um, I, and when we call you, you give us answers, you get back to us right away. So we do pride ourselves in our customer service and the quality of the product for yeah. the customer. And can you talk a little bit about the design process? Because that's one thing I think that um, if if there's any room for notching things up a little bit, mm -hmm. I, I think um, there's... You guys have done some great stuff. Some, you know, whether it's the um, Eiffel Tower shaped coin or whether it's the King Tut pyramid <laughs> coin. There's some other coins that are, are just coins. It, right. To me, you know, the, they have the the Pop Joy finish and all that, but they're not. Uh, they're not. They don't wow me like some others. Tell me about the artist who who, who are designing these. Where they're they're designed. That process. Okay. Every issue is a little bit different. So sometimes we have a client that comes to us and wants to issue a coin. And then they say, well, we're kind of thinking about this. So we bring it back. We do up a rough sketch, send it back to them. They take a look at it and say, okay, this is good. You're right on the right track. And we turn it over to one of our artists there in the UK that turns that into, they throw in a rough sketch, which is much better designed than what we could do. Send it back. And, and it goes back and forth because we do get input. Um, sometimes if we don't have a client that wants something, but we look at a design and we're not quite sure, there's a couple people that I do send it off to in the state saying, hey, you know what, we're doing this coin, we're not quite sure this pops as well as we'd like, can you take a look at it and offer up suggestions? And, and so these are uh, designers on contract, they're not staff designers? Right, or, correct, we have okay. designers on contract in the UK that okay. do it. Well, I, I just didn't know, that's one thing that yep. has never really been explored in, at least right. in, in my reporting, uh, because... Popjoy does so many designs, I thought right. they might have somebody on staff. No, we have a, a network of different artists that we work with. A except for there was one coin we issued um, two years ago, which was Mythical Creatures. Um, we actually did have a staff member who worked down in production and was an artist. And she overheard us talking about a couple things. And she actually did the design work for our Mythical Creatures collection. It was a dark, it was different than um, our normal artist because it was a dark themed type coin. And our artists don't generally deal with that. And she came up with some designs. I'm like, these are fantastic. And how cool is it that an in-house person working in production would actually do a design work for one of our... And it turned out to be a very popular issue. Cool. So I want to get a coin series struck. What do I do? How do I... How, walk me through. Let's, 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 get, okay. let's get the Jeff Stark coin series going. The Jeff Stark going. coin series going. Okay, Jeff will then come to me and say... Not showing me, mind you. I want it oh, to sell. I, oh, I thought we were going to have the Jeff on there. No. Um, no, you come to me and say, hey, look, I got this idea. I think it would be great. There's a tie-in to one of your countries. And that's the biggest thing is we have to have a tie-in to one of our countries. As you what know, are the countries? No. Rattle through the list. Okay, we have Ascension Islands, 
British Virgin Islands, British Antarctic Territories, British Indian Ocean Territories, Falkland Islands, Gibraltar, South Georgia, and the South Sandwich Islands, and Sierra Leone. We do. You nailed them. I nailed them all. We do some work for a few other countries as well, but those are our main countries that we sell and distribute for. And and people used to know you for the Isle of Man. That's Correct. been a couple of years now that you haven't done with yes. Isle of Man, but you do have that rich tradition. You can't you can't you can't know, get away from can't it. Can't get no. away from that. And some of the uh, some of the great programs that you guys did with Isle of Man. Uh, there's the tourist trophy race, fifty pence. There's some Christmas coins. Do you have a favorite among all those? Yes, I do. Um, there's actually two different coins. Uh, 1990, we issued the Penny Black. That has probably been my all-time favorite. I actually worked Coin at of the Year Award Coin winner. Of the award. It's lots of awards. I was actually working at Unicover, um, and we sold it. I'm like, well, this is a great coin. Came on board at, at, at Asset and uh, proposed doing a, a one-ounce gold. And it, it just whenever we touched that particular coin, anything, it was really successful and just a beautiful design. And to bring that full circle... You guys have a recent Penny Black 50 pence coin. Yes. And that has done extremely well also. Right. Well, we've taken, um, we're working with Gibraltar on it. It's, uh, we've done the 50p. The 50p has really taken off in Europe over the last three to four years. We've done a lot with different 50p coins. And so we've taken the, the Penny Black. It's a 50p. We've done a P8 for it, which is the double thickness. And so it's a different, um, a different shape than the one we did with the Isle of Man. Still the same design, and customers are loving it as well. And the 50p is real popular, you said. Uh, would, I know you, you pay attention to the modern market. You have to in, in your position. Would you attribute that to the Royal Mint's abundance of issues of 50ps starting with the Olympics? I think it, it became aware. It was an awareness issue. Um, like I said, three years ago, um, our person that did our retail website it was on a, a lot of different um, coin blogs and noticed that there was a general interest in 50Ps, and so we decided to try it. And, you know, and you've done penguins, and you've done turtles, turtles and flamingos. And go, and yeah. The cool. flamingos are a Varenium series, but yeah, similar to that. Yeah. Cool. So what next for Pop Joy Mint? We've got a lot of good stuff coming up. We've got a really nice program coming up for the Mayflower that uh, I can't really say exactly what's going to be done for that, but that one is a, really, uh, a couple unique items for that as well. So a couple fun and interesting. We have our, our big cat series. We've got two ounces. We have some different things we're testing of different innovations with coins. So it should be a pretty exciting year for us. Awesome. Thank you so much for sitting down here at the fun show, Florida United Numismatist Show. We're in Orlando, Florida. Thank you so much for your time. Beth Casper of the Pop Joy Man. Thank you very much, Jeff. After I sat down with Beth Casper, I got to sit down with Steve Austin. Steve is vice president of the International Association of Silver Art Collectors, very interesting organization that specializes in silver as art, not just investment items. Here's the interview with Steve. I am delighted to be joined today by uh, Steve Austin, who is the vice president of the International Association of Silver Art Collectors. That is an organization dedicated to the study and collection and investment in silver as art, not just bullion stackers. Uh, thank you for being here today. Uh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate it. My understanding, uh, as I watch the, the silver art community, you guys are really, you know, the hobby is really sort of divided in a couple camps. You have the folks who are just, when it comes to precious metals, they're, they're all about paying as, as the least amount of 
price over spot compared to spot. And then there's somebody who's looking at this as a long-term investment, a something, an object to be enjoyed, a piece of artwork. And that's where you guys come in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And see, the thing is, some people, they actually, like for myself, I do have some investment bullion also, okay? But you can still find attractive pieces that have some eye appeal to them, but the, because of the mintages, because of the availability, the higher occurrence rates, those pieces can be gotten for as close to spot as you can possibly get. So like, let's say silver is about approximately 18, I think $18.11 it was a bit ago. So for a five ounce bar, that is approximately $90. And if let's say silver in the next year, doubles or goes up four dollars or whatever percentage it goes up you could cash in just like and sell that like somebody would a stock or whatnot right sure and that is a solid investment but you always have to be frugal you have to be diligent you have to do your research just like with any investment whether it be real estate or whatnot this though when you start talking about premium collectible pieces just like comic books baseball cards artwork there's designs and ranges of it fun investments and combinations therefore for pretty much any anybody and any age level and any monetary level and it, it would seem that the silver art pieces offer a way to sort of you know I, i've always looked at i know many coin folks look at precious metals as a hedge not mm -hmm. necessarily investment but just a nice little uh piece of protection or insurance yeah. but the the artistic pieces sort of can serve as that with the added benefit of rarity and beauty. Absolutely. And a lot of, let's say you invest in a, um, some, some of the mints back in the day in the 70s and 80s, like Great House Productions, Tom and Nancy Great House, they designed bars. They were not a striking mint. They had five different striking mints, Mint of America, Zeiser Manufacturing, United States Silver Corp, World Mint, and um, they had different mints over the years strike the bars for them. But they designed them and had them made. Some of those bars, they can hit five, six hundred dollars an ounce for silver now, very easily in the collector market. So there is appreciation. Yeah. So let's let's explain this for somebody who's new to the area. Mm -hmm. uh, silver art bars and and rounds uh, seem to me to have really developed and come into their own in the 1960s. Is that right? Late 60s, generally late, late 60s. 60s. You had Foster Company out of Walla Walla, Washington, a few others in the late 60s had some art bars, which are basically small, rectangular art pieces equivalent to private mint. Like you look at a silver, like an American Eagle, that is art. That is a silver art. Somebody designed that. It was actually, uh, it was carved into a die by a die cutter and then struck. That's how art bars and rounds were done, but generally by private mints as opposed. Yes, and, and you have a, just an array of topics that can be collected. Lots of pop culture, lots of sometimes into the body themes. You have some items mm -hmm. that were even um, made for celebrities or in celebrities' names without their permission. It, it's, it's quite an array of, of items available, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Pretty much any, any, almost anything you can think of from Watergate to Nixon, bicentennial pieces during, like, 
One of my favorite sets was put out by Fleetwood Mint. They, uh, it's a bicentennial set, it has 41 bars, and it's amazing. The artwork on them is absolutely amazing, but it's history, like Battle of Concord, all the uh, George Washington assumes command of the uh, Navy. I mean, just on and on. I think it was Navy. I think it was Navy. But on and on and on, but the artwork's beautiful. And they actually went to the effort of putting them in the PNC first day covers, and each event of those 41 are postmarked 200 years from the day of the event from the of the event from when it happened from the place it happened so there's a lot of learning too a lot of the history even like the comic kuatech there's a few bars about that i didn't even know some of this history myself even though i'm a college graduate until i got into art bars i'm looking at various bars and various people and various themes and events and then i look it up and it's a gateway into history and learning that I never even thought of. It, it's funny you mentioned the Watergate pieces because I was at a local coin shop about a year ago and found one such piece. I also found at that same time a Jim and Tammy Faye Baker PTL silver round. Oh, that yeah. it, you know th- th- some of the some of the more fun pieces that are yeah. out there. But the the landscape is uh, it, it's enormous. How would somebody who wants to get into this area says, "Oh, I like the idea of collecting silver. I like the idea that there's an you know." somebody is respecting the artistry behind it it's not just a hunk of investment or hedge in the case of bullion how would somebody go about diving in if they're new carefully carefully just like you would with coins you need to try to get some guidebooks you need to try to find a mentor you need to uh spend some time speaking with other folks just like in the in the in coins if you wouldn't just go out and start buying morgans and and hoping that you were going to find something nice and paying premiums for things. You would buy a red book, you buy, you get a gray sheet, you get various informational data, and there are, guide, there are guidebooks for yeah. art bars. The, the analogous things is uh, there's, there's a two-volume set, right? Yes, and great, exciting news coming out because the main edition, the fifth, edi- fifth edition Silver Index Guidebook to Silver Art Bars was actually put out by a mentor of mine, Archie Kidd. He passed away back in 2011. But that fifth edition is the main book to cover from, let's say, 1967-ish to 1991-ish. And then the sixth edition covered from 1991-ish with a little overlap to 2007. Okay, the seventh edition is in the works. It is, should be going to print in February. Michael Cabron and Theo from SilverArtCollector.com. They spoke to Archie Kidd's son, Stephen Kidd. Yeah, he has the books and the rights to the books. They are doing a seventh edition, which will cover 2007 forward to now. It's gonna. It's really exciting. I think the launch might be at Long Beach. Actually, that's my understanding. Michael Cabron is MK Bars. People might be familiar with him, and he now on SAC at SilverArtCollector.com, and there's some exciting news coming down the line with the awesome. guidebook, and supposedly there's going to be two more guidebooks in the future. Awesome, and and so there seems to be, you mentioned uh, mentorship, there seems to be a robust community uh, online and social media, Facebook particularly, for collectors of silver art pieces, uh, and you're very involved in those, right? What, what are the best ones to be to be looking at? Well, I mean, it's always great to be in a, in a group of people that are like-minded people. I mean, just like you have your, the A&A and you have the Florida United Newsmatic. I mean, it, it's great to be in a group of people that are like-minded that you can have a good time with and have laughs with. It's like a family reunion. That's what we were talking about the other day. When you have, you, you get together with all your 
people you know and some people you don't even you know from social media or you know from eBay or you know from across the country because you traded with them but when you meet them it's almost like a family reunion and then the search is like an Easter egg hunt for adults right and then every mail call you get it's like Christmas it's just a fantastic hobby you know yeah but just like there's a few websites I mean a few websites like Silver Arc like, like I mentioned that's a resource and there's a silver uh, ingot info.com which is coming up with some of the poured industrial type ingots and uh, as far as Facebook you have the silver uh, silver bars and art collectibles that's a my group uh, it's a closed group so people in your neighborhood don't necessarily know what you are collecting there's a modern silver art group uh, that covers more of the modern items then there's a vintage poured group, which covers some of the vintage poured industrial type items. Those are three of the main ones. And then the people that like just a generic, lesser, uh, more of a investment type grade. That's uh, one called Silver Miners. It's extremely nice on Facebook. And then there's oh, a that's really, very busy. Yeah. really, yeah, they have about 17,000, 18,000 members in there. It's a fantastic group. But then Instagram has a lot of strong, strong, tight-knit community. Between Facebook and Instagram and our club, we have about 40 people here that flew in from everywhere, from California, from Canada, New York. We went out to dinner last night and had about 35 people. I mean, it was fantastic. Awesome. And and it seems to me the other thing that, um, you know, when you think of silver art collecting, you might think of the bars and rounds that proliferated as you, you know, from the late 60s, 70s, and 80s, back when silver was much cheaper. Uh, but those, of course, continue to be made, and there's all sorts of specialty items. The thing that seems to define the hobby today for me, or certainly make it so fascinating, is the do-it-yourself ethos. Many uh, folks have taken it upon themselves to become their own artist and, and their own creators. Talk about uh, what that landscape looked like uh, from the range of the relatively common or or easier items to there's some items that are just jaw-droppingly beautiful and and staggering amount of detail and so much effort and work goes into them talk about the range of items that are available in in that modern segment okay i mean as far as the press pieces many of the press pieces are are designed by let's i I call it a pseudo mint like, let's say myself and Jeff decide we're going to be Jeff and Steve's mint, right? We'd be a pseudo mint because we don't I, 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 t- I take STL mint because I'm from St. Louis, but that's already taken. And that's Sean Page. Yeah. Sean Page, great guy, great guy. And uh, he has done press bars, but Silvertown actually is the striking authority or striking mint for St. Louis mint press bars. He did have some. He did have a round done with Intaglio. Okay. The striking mint. But the poured pieces, they are um, – they're they're amazing. A lot more. A, a lot of people can design bars, the press pieces, and then they're dice cut by die cutters. But they're more designers, right? They're yeah. pseudo mints. But the poured artists, the people that do pours and castings, that that's amazing. I mean, some of these folks, right? Like a buddy of mine was Brian from Temecula, California, uh, barely living. Yeah. That's his. Barely, as in barrels, because he used to take. He's a carpenter. Wine barrels. He would take wine barrels, recycle them, and make beautiful, beautiful. Uh, everything from humidors to cabinets and just amazing. And then he hurt his knee, got into silver casting, and he's just artistic to start with. This man, his pieces are amazing, and just the detail, it's, it's what you would consider 
art that would be like figurines and arts and stuff oh, that you would see in museums. I was going to say, I, I would not be surprised to see them in art galleries because yeah, yeah. The, the detail to Brian's work, what I'm seeing on Facebook is just unreal. It, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And then you have other people, and it, it's not that they're not as good because some of these other people could do, I mean, maybe not as quite as good as Brian, but everybody has their limits. But some people could do close to that, if not that, but their business model is just different. They'd rather make... A thousand bars that are poured that are stamped and have a general theme to them but their business model is more of about a volume instead of maybe doing two pieces every month and for, for you know special uh, collectors where somebody can sign something commission something where they said I would like this done could you do it and he says I'll give it a shot you know so still there's there's something for everybody at every premium range almost every style you'd want and and there's a community of these creators, not just in the U.S. They're they're global. Oh yeah, oh yeah. There's some, there's some guys over in the U.K. from the people that are metalcasters like uh, Chris Carter and uh, a few others over there, and a guy named Ollie. And then there's I mean all throughout the U.K. and even some of the enamelers that do some of the in detail precision enamelers. A guy named Wayne Legrand, a guy named David Hill. They're fantastic. I mean it's. It, it's on the same scale with the, that as what the top hobo carvers. I mean, the top hobo carvers, the amount of intricate work they can do, that's on the same scale as that. Yeah, and, and, and just like with hobo nickels and pieces, there, there's an array of skill sets and business models, like you say. So there, there's something really, somebody can jump in at a lower level, uh, have a little less risk as far as, you know, it's, it's closer to spot, but that's okay because... Mm. You know, there, it's, it, it didn't take a lot of time for them to do it. Uh, I, I do see that some folks are sometimes not cognizant of, of the time it takes for some of these pieces. And, and, and from an artist standpoint, uh, you know, <laughs> that, that, would, that would rankle you a little bit. Yeah, but, but you have to realize, and I even tell some of them, because every once in a while some of the artists will say to me, hey, it's just insulting. I'd say, well, it's not insulting because, you know, the people just don't know. Yeah. I mean, I, I've never poured a bar. I can imagine from talking to some of my, some of the guys that how much effort it takes. I've seen a couple guys have major injuries where a crucible exploded and it burned their hand to the bone. It's just unfortunate. Just like just like welders, there's a lot of skill sets out there that are very difficult that you just can't do because you want to do it. But then again, some people just don't know how much it takes as far as skill level or as far as just the actual aptitude of doing it. Yeah, and and the risk and the you know all and all the overall variables. Cost all the overall cost. I mean, because you have to replacement of coils and just the whole nine yards of your the clay, the type of sand casting they do, the the, the molds. I mean, it's just it's an ongoing cost. Yeah, and uh, is that the the future of the silver art collector community? These uh, these custom pieces, these sort of uh, the limited edition. Uh, poured stuff is there there seems to be some strong demand for like the STL mint stuff um, is is that more the future than than a, a sort of interest in the past pieces is there what's the strongest segment uh, I, I think it's just personal I, I think that and from what I see there there's just people that like if we were all the same, it'd be a boring place, Jeff. If we were all the same, it'd be a boring place. Okay. Yeah. Everybody likes different things, and some people like pores of varying degrees, from new to old, from a nude to 
a religious piece and everywhere in between, okay? People like press bars, people like pour bars, people like figurines. It's just all personal preference. And you have ups and downs because you know what? If Jeff gets a piece and he's super, super excited about it and he shows it to me, I very well may get super excited about it and want one like it as well. That passion is contagious, I think, especially in the silver art community. Yeah. At least from what I've seen in, in the Facebook groups. So is there room or what room is there for somebody who's just uh, right now collecting, say, American Silver Eagles? What, what role do they have in, in the silver art community? Well, when it comes right down to it, I guarantee that anybody that likes coins or notes or comic books or anything in this world, if you got into it, you will like, you will find something you like. I mean, you might not want to buy something once a week. You might buy something twice a year because your main passion may be a Morgan or your main passion could be a, a notes or you might be working on that educational note set, which might be awful expensive. So sure. <laughs> you might not have as much money, but you know what, you, if you want something, you'll find it. And then if they don't make it, you can talk to one of these guys like Brian or somebody and commission them and have them make, somebody made one of the big marine, you know, the marine symbol with the uh, big globe and so forth. Yeah. He made a multi-part one of them that's huge for somebody that was a, a, a veteran that wanted one. And I mean, so there's something for everybody. And, and I think that's an appropriate summation of the silver art community. We will provide some links in the show notes to the IASAC website, some of these groups. And um, certainly, uh, thank you for taking the time here at the fun show. Always a very busy show. And it's, uh, I think, one of the best for the silver art community. Uh, we appreciate you being here. Oh, yeah. And I appreciate it as well. I just want to say one thing. It isn't for the people mentoring other people like, like Archie Kidd and some of the people that took me under their wing, okay? People, just like in coins, you have to pass information forward, you have to share your stories, and some of the stories you think are silly, like even about a get-together like we're doing right now, that means something to somebody in the next generation, okay? They want to know who you met, they want to know the little stories, they want to know your bios, they want to know some history, and they want to know some information about mentages and so forth. So always share your stories. Okay. Absolutely. We, we, we collectors uh, walk in the footsteps of those before us, and uh, that is a great reminder as we close this interview out. Thank you again. No, thank you. Another fascinating interview that I got to do at the Florida United Misfits show in Orlando was a discussion with Ricardo Lopez of the Cuban Numismatic Association, and specifically we talked about coins that are new to the market that are coming from a shipwreck off the coast of Cuba. I have the pleasure of being joined today by Ricardo Lopez, the president of the Cuban Numismatic Association. Thank you for being here today. Yes, great. Thank you for having me. So uh, tell me a little bit about the Cuban Numismatic Association and your involvement with that. It's a club. Uh, right now I'm the president as we stand, and uh, we have members pretty much all over the world. Uh, there's a lot of bases out of Miami, Florida, out of Tampa, St. Petersburg, uh, we have members from Colorado, Houston, Texas. Uh, we only meet at the fun show because of that, because there's members everywhere. So uh, the fun show gives us a good opportunity to get together and meet and, and go over the Cuban numismatics. And, and all of the, the impetus for this is your passion for numismatics of Cuba. Correct. Yeah. And, and tell me about some of the challenges as somebody who would want to come into that market. For instance, um, I can't find some of these coins on eBay because of uh, the U.S. relations with Cuba. How, how, how sticky is, is that for somebody looking to get into them? Right. Of course, the politics always comes into play, which I, I really don't like to have any part of. 
Uh, I'm here about the coins and the, the history, and, and my family's Cuban. And uh, just like a lot of collectors that come to America, they want to have the opportunity to collect. And, and eBay, and, and you know, they, have a, they have this uh, policy where they take it off. If you try to put something on, on eBay that says the word Cuba, because of the embargo, they will actually just take it off. And, and unfortunately, that affects those pieces. Obviously, 1959's line of demarcation. But before that, uh, U.S. and Cuba had great relations. And in fact, the U.S. struck some of these coins. Correct. Yeah, uh, the first Republic coins, they started in 1915. And they were all struck in Philadelphia. Beautiful that's designs. that's what I love to tell people about the Cuban coins, is that they are so similar to the U.S. because they were struck in the U.S. You have the same kind of denominations. You have the dime, the quarter... Silver, you know, 90% silver. I would say same you fineness. Know, same was, fineness, yeah. the peso and everything. And, and you know, they got the, ni- the nice design of the star on, on the middle. Uh, it's just a beautiful coin. Absolutely. So tell me a little bit now, uh, you have been involved in the recovery or marketing of some shipwreck coins. A lot of collectors love shipwreck coins, but this is one found off the waters of Cuba? Yeah, so... I first started going to Cuba to visit my family that's there, and uh, I became interested in the coins and met some some people that collect in Cuba, and they have a whole network in Cuba of uh, collectors and dealers and everything um, that we didn't know about, you know. And um, I came across these shipwreck coins, and I tried to find out as much information that I could about them, but all I could find out was that they were between the 1790s and 1807. 1807 seems to be the most recent one. Uh, some divers found them about 20 feet of water off the coast, and they don't have a name of a ship, but they were able to grab some coins and kind of chisel them out of the coral. So through the network of people that I met in Cuba, I was able to grab some of these coins and bring them back. Um, they've, I know they've taken some to, to Panama and to Dominican Republic, and they've sold them off, but there's never been a way to verify where they came from. Uh, you can always say whatever. You know, when you see a, a raw shipwreck coin, you can say where it came from. But I went through the process of getting them uh, documented while I was in Cuba, and I got the paperwork to get them out of Cuba. So with that paperwork, I was able to take them to NGC, and NGC reviewed the pedigree that I had, and they certified them and slabbed them with the name Cuban Waters Shipwreck. And I I love it because you hear all the stories of history of all the ships going through Cuban waters and going through uh, Havana, and Havana being the hub of where all the treasure would go. And before, you know, when they would go to the Mexico, to the mints, and bring all the treasure back before going back to Spain. Yeah, the, the, uh, the 20%. Right, and there's so many shipwrecks out there, and not, I don't, I'm not familiar with any that are in Cuba, or are from Cuba, that you can actually say. Um, so this is kind of the newest thing that, by saying Cuban waters wreck, it gives that reality that this, this is right there in that water. These are the first shipwreck coins for Cuba off Cuban yeah, waters. Yeah, so it's, it's so interesting to me. And, and, and what are the uh, denominations of coins that have been found there, and, and what, what rulers, what eras, what, are, what kind of coins are, they're, are your, they're they're all found from, in the world? Yeah, they're all from the uh, 1790s to 1807. They're Carlos IV. They're all Spanish coins. Um, they are eight reals. That's all I've Any, all any I've specific mint or the different mints? We do have the different mints. Uh, the majority are from Mexico City, but we've had some New Guatemala, uh, very limited New Guatemala, limited Peru, and um, there's been a few Bolivias. 
So yeah. those are, that's it. And, and how recent has this discovery been? What's your journey been like to get the paperwork and all that? What kind of timeline are we looking at? It's been about uh, a year to two year process now. And um, but just most recently was when I was able to get the l largest uh, amount certified. So I just got them out uh, yesterday. NGC brought them to the show for me. And I've just been kind of showing them around and just gaining the interest and showing them how, how cool is that? You know, that's something out of Cuba like that. Um, so, yeah, I'm just excited to, to share that and, you know, the, to let collectors know that there's something new out there. And it, it's going back to that history of that channel through Cuba. And about how many coins are going to be are on NGC slabs with that uh, name of the Cuban it's, waters wreck? It's very limited. There's about 75 right now. That's it. Okay. And I have about 25 raw coins that I did not get certified. So right now, out of that group is 75. And, oh, I forgot to mention, I also have some clumps. And there's only about 15 clumps that range from two to uh, two to three coins per clump. Uh, I think I have the largest clump I have is a six-coin clump. But, I mean, and, they, and NGC was able to photo certify those. Is the work to recover more items from this wreck or wreck field ongoing? Every time I go to Cuba, I ask, and I can't find any more. So they uh, say that's it. <laughs> it wouldn't have been cool to have been out there, like, on the ship with the divers as they were getting ready to go down. To I would love work. to. You know, I mean, I've, I've 20 feet of water, that's going... not, that, that's, that's, I mean, I'm not a, not a much of a swimmer, but th that would, I would even maybe be willing to strap up for that that's not too bad right and what's interesting is the stories that i've heard is that it's a guy on a boat with a guy with a hose down under like like he doesn't have all the proper equipment that yeah. we might you know be familiar with so it's, it's a dangerous so it's, in a sense. Uh, very dangerous yeah very dangerous hmm. <laughs> um any other thoughts about the wreck uh you know, and, and just the Cuban numismatics in general? No, at this point, I've been trying to research as much as I can, uh, but I, I keep coming up to a dead end on that part. Um, but I, I do want to share that, you know, the Cuban Numismatic Association, uh, we're, we're trying to revive the club and get more people involved and get interested. And uh, we're going to be making a medal soon and a coin for the club soon. But, um, but yeah, they can go to the website. Which uh, is? we have It's Cuban Numismatic association.com okay and is, is there any other social media presence like a facebook group or anything yeah we do have a facebook page also that seems to be a lot more active uh with a lot of people going on there and, and posting questions and showing coins and uh our membership is only 20 dollars a year and it gets you a membership card and we send out some newsletters and we're just trying to get more interest get more people involved it seems like obviously uh, somebody who would be a member generally is somebody who has uh, Cuban heritage. But for somebody who doesn't have Cuban heritage, what's the, the greatest draw to the organization? Kind of like what I said before about the history of the coins being minted by U.S. And that, that seems to be a lot. Or also, a lot of people have uh, relatives or, you know, that maybe have passed away that used to vacation in Cuba. You know, you go, go in, the, in the 50s and in, the, in that time and they hear stories about, Going there for the casinos and the you know the the vacations. Oh, and I'd love to go. And and I love to hear those stories. Major League you know? Baseball players were going there for spring training and and other things. I mean, right. It, it you know the 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 natural proximity to the U.S. had has created uh, some some great ties back in the day. Right, right. And there's such a good a good American history there with uh, you know the old cars and the antiques yeah. and the buildings and and the people are just so friendly. 
and accommodating. You know, it's, it's just a, a good place. Are, are folks in the CNA interested in the more recent stuff as well? I mean, I know there's, like I see the three pesos with Che Guevara out there. There's lots of collector coins that Cuba has issued with, you know, some with color, lots of just you know, wildlife themes or pop culture themes. What about, where, where does that fit in? Yeah, typically a lot of the, the Cuban heritage people are are not really familiar, they're not fond of that, you know, because that's the new generation, the new uh, era, going, you know, without getting into all the politics about sure. it. That's, they, they, a lot of the collectors from Cuba stay away from that. Um, so that's more of a, a foreign you know, a lot of a lot of markets in Europe will will enjoy those coins. Yeah, um, you still might have some Cuban collectors just because they love numismatics, and that's it. And they they try to put politics aside and say, you know what, I like the coins, no matter who did this or did that. I just like the coins. And so yeah. sometimes you'll have some collectors for that purpose. And I think that's the perfect summation for the end of our discussion because at the end of the day. We all just love our coins or paper <laughs> right. money, tokens and medals. And that's what uh, hopefully um, the passion comes through, certainly from you and from others at this show. Right. So thank you exactly. for joining me here at the Fun Show. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Absolutely. And our final interview was with Ray Dillard to talk about smash pennies or elongated coins. It is my privilege to be joined today with Ray Dillard, the past president, uh, President Emeritus of the Elongated Collectors, Tech for short. Thank you for being here today. Thank you. So anybody who has been to an ANA show, or in this case, the fun show, has seen you and your blue blazer, your colorful outfit. How long have you been coming to these shows? 35 years I've been coming. 35 years. Awesome. And uh, you've been involved in the c collecting of elongated sense that whole time? Yes. So how did you get involved uh, with that? How did you learn of what elongated sense? Actually, I didn't get involved with elongated sense until after I retired from General Motors. <laughs> and uh, I seen an article in Coin World about a fellow that had uh, some elongated machines on the streets in New York City uh, rolling the Lord's Prayer. And that reminded me of... Uh, when I was a kid at the Chicago World's Fair in 1933, I seen these coins, and in fact, I got one rolled on the, for the Lord's Prayer at that particular show. So you attended the Chicago World's Fair? Yes. And, and you're somewhere about 90 years old? I, I, I was nine years old at the time. You were nine years at the time. And, and what does that make you now? <laughs> 94. 94. You are the king of elongated sense, correct? Not necessarily. <laughs> I think it absolutely is the case. Your, your modesty is too much. So you retired and picked up this hobby. I, I felt that I seen this particular thing and I figured, hey, that'd be something that I remember, something that I maybe if I got into, it would help. It would keep me involved with numismatics and other things. And also... Uh, help finance my hobby as a coin collector. You got into, so uh, for those who are unaware, elongated sense, uh, you see these machines everywhere at a, at a tourist site or wherever. You put the penny in, you put 50 cents or a dollar in, and you can choose a design in some cases, some cases that's already chosen for you, and away you crank. Right. And these have now become, I would say, ubiquitous. At, <laughs> I, I went, I'm from St. Louis. I went to the St. Louis Zoo over Christmas, and they had multiple machines there. You can't go anywhere without seeing these. 
but I got into them earlier than that. When I got interested in the older ones that uh, were for, you know, say like the St. Louis World's Fair and the uh, Century of Progress, the 1933-34 World's Fair. And I'm interested in the, the historic ones, not the newer ones. Sure, but that's the great thing about the hobby, though, is you can pick up any point and come in. Right. So the first uh, elongated sense came about in 1893? Started in 1893 at the Columbian Exposition. And you weren't at that, obviously. No, I, I, no. <laughs> but, but you certainly came into it a little later, also in Chicago then. Right. And, and so 35 years ago, the idea for you was hey, I can start making my own designs and selling these. Right. Uh, what was your first design? Do you remember? The Lord's Prayer. Lord's Prayer, okay. And the Lord's what, Prayer, the uh, a Lucky Scent, and the American Flag. That quickly sort of exploded. There's a, a book just of your designs. How many different designs have you had over the years? About between 1,500 and 2,000. Is that all? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Tell me about the uh, special... Uh, mechanical side of, of creating an elongated scent dye, uh, the design it process itself. What that to me would be very uh, unfamiliar and, and not scary in a in a real sense, but foreboding. Very very. Oh my gosh! How, I wouldn't even know where to start. I make a custom design for my customers and for the different shows. When it comes to the different to show, I make one to commemorate that particular show. They usually furnish me with a with a logo and, uh, of course, uh, the, the year and the, the month and so forth, the names, the numbers and the letters to go with the, the design, and I create the design for them and uh, send it back to them for approval before I have the die cut. Now, it's usually laid out on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper, and, but uh, it goes to the die maker and he reduces that in the, in the photo process, acid etched into a steel roll. And that's just a, a regular uh, die setting process, like a tool and die maker type? No, not necessarily. Okay. Not necessarily. Uh, because, I mean, my understanding is, you know, there's special dies because of the, the elongated form and the way the, right, right. the coin rolls up a little bit. There, there are people, engravers, that they, they can engrave, but they can't on this this round roll. Uh, so anyway, it, it's a little bit of a specialty, but uh, there's a, because of it uh, being so popular, it, there's, these machines are at every theme park in the country and also on the uh, truck stops on the turnpike. Uh, you can't turn around without running into one of these machines. And uh, so how many artists are there that can, uh, craftsmen, I guess, or craftswomen, that can create the dyes that are active today in the U.S.? I, I would say that there are no more than a dozen. No more than a dozen. Okay. Yeah. So if I wanted to get my own elongated scent for, gosh, if I ever got married or something crazy like that, wh what would I do? What's, walk me through the process. Can I, I approach you with the design? Yes. Yes. Okay. And and then uh, we create some kind of a design. It'd be either bells or rings or doves or what have you. Choo and, choose the design elements. Right, right. and uh, and uh, the of course the dates and the anniversary. What have sure. You. Okay. And tell me about the literature surrounding elongated sense. There's there's a a rich history of numismatic literature for elongated sense. Yes. Uh, 
there are a couple different catalogs. If somebody's new to the hobby, what, what do they need to do to get started? Well, it's according to whether they're interested in uh, what series that they're interested in. If there's yesterday's elongators, that's all the, those uh, covered from uh, 1893 up to mid-70s. And then, then there's, they had a section that today's elongators that covered from 75 to 85. And then these modern ones, uh, there's uh, the only way you can uh, keep up with those is the individual rollers that they publish a booklet on their own designs. Okay. But, but, the, but the, you know, you get into the, the specialties such as uh, Disney, Disney World. Uh, there's, there's an organization of just Disney collectors, but uh, our organization of the elongated collectors covers them all. Yeah, and uh, it, it seems that elongated scents are the one numismatic item that have really transcended the hobby because uh, there are all sorts of active uh, Facebook groups and websites, communities really, where collectors around smashing pennies and, of course, other denominations, but usually pennies, uh, that they, these folks sort of uh, gather around these communities. What's your sense of how important has the Internet been in sharing the word of, of elongated cents, elongated coins, and creating communities for collectors? I, I think it's very important for the, for the uh, especially the people that collect the tourist-type coins. Uh, they, they contact each other, and they trade back and forth. Uh, it, it, it's, a, it's a great communicator for the, uh, for the, uh, different, the collectors of these different series of coins. And uh, that has a place just as, say, the 1933 or the 1893. Some of those earlier ones can get really expensive comparatively, but when you look at a, a comparable, comparably rare U.S. coin, the prices are nowhere near. So what's rare and expensive in the elongated market, and what would I need to, to spend to get something that's almost unique or almost, yeah, you know, handful known? Chicago World's Fair in 1933 and uh, they had, it was during the Depression, you know, yeah. and, and there, there was 120 different designs for that particular exposition. Yeah. And uh, they were run, you can get them anywhere from $5 to $50 a piece. Uh, and then the uh, the ones for the 1904 St. Louis World on Fair, the Pike. Yeah, they're they're run a little more expensive. Uh, they're they're really a better a nicer coin too. Uh, the the Pike you mentioned the Pike the Pike uh, had the reputation for many years of being the only elongated coin that sold. For over a thousand dollars. A thousand dollars. Thousand dollars. And is the market that strong for that today? Oh yes, much more. Fact, much more. What it, what would it go fact, for today? Uh, Bob Hendershot. He he was an older fellow, and he was at that fair. Absolutely, and, and he wrote a book about right. numismatics of the yeah, fair. And his, he had had the Pike, and his sold for four thousand two hundred and twenty-five dollars. And when was that? That was right shortly before he died. Before okay, he in the 90s then, or yeah. 2004 or somewhere. Yeah. I had one when I sold my collection 
it went for four thousand four hundred dollars. Four and but, and so okay. that is that is sort of the pinnacle of rarity. Yes, and yes, the yes. that's the nineteen thirteen nickel of, of elongated sense <laughs> yes, in a is. sense. Right. And right. and 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 comparably only forty four hundred dollars versus uh, three and a half million. Right. So that speaks <laughs> to how how accessible the elongated sense are as as a collecting area. Right. What's um. What kind of you? You've obviously derived a lot of joy from the hobby, uh, and uh, maybe that's kept you going all these years. Well, as I say, the object of me getting into it was to keep me involved, and it has, and it has kept me going. And and maybe six years from now, we're going to be sitting here, and you're going to have one for your hundredth birthday. Well, I, I put one out not long ago for my ninetieth birthday. My my family. Had a big party for me, and I had a coin for them right now. Awesome, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it's always fun to talk to you, <laughs> see you, uh, learn a little bit about the great hobby of elongated sense. We will provide a link to some of the websites and, and resources uh, that we've discussed here today in our show notes. Um, thank you again. You've, you've made my first fun show extra fun. <laughs> I've been doing this fun show for for 20 years and make, them, make a coin for them every year for the last 20 years. Yeah, it's, a, it's a real pleasure for me to be here and nice talking to you, Jeff. Thank you again. Thank you so much for listening to this compilation of a bunch of different discussions that I got to have at the Florida United Mismatist Show in 2020, my first fun show. Boy, did I have a lot of fun, and I hope you had a lot of fun, and maybe even learned a thing or two listening to our discussions at the show. This is a reminder that if you've enjoyed the Coin World podcast in the past, please subscribe, share it with all your friends and anyone you know who may love to learn and has any interest in numismatics. We look forward to joining you next week with the usual show, the fun stuff Chris and I always do. And thank you for indulging me in this little foray into the fun show, Good Times. Until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and we'll see you next week. Send us your questions and feedback on Facebook at facebook.com slash coinworld or on Twitter at coinworld. Be the first to know about our next episode by signing up for our newsletter. Go to coinworld.com and click on free newsletter to sign up today. This episode of the Coinworld podcast was brought to you by the Coinworld Marketplace. All the safety, trust, and convenience you'd expect from Coinworld. With over 40,000 coins available, Visit coinworld.market to explore our inventory today.